If, you're, if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Please pay careful attention for this is God's inspired word. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. As you recall, last week we considered Jesus' words to us about the four fundamentals of the kingdom of God. Some of the most central aspects of life in the kingdom. And one of those fundamentals was the nature of true or saving faith. Now, of course, there are many things that Jesus did in his life and ministry, and the Gospels only give us a short snippet of, of all that he did. And so why did Luke include this narrative on the cleansing of ten lepers here? I believe that Luke is continuing to expand upon the nature of this one fundamental of the kingdom. That is to say, the nature of this true and saving faith. If you'll see in verse 19, Jesus responds to this one leper who came to worship him, thank him after being cleansed from this disease. And Jesus says to him, rise and go your way for your faith has made you well. Now, in your Bibles, many of you may have a footnote that says an alternative rendering here for instead of has made you well is has saved you. Now, in the original language, it's just one word here. And this one word can either refer to a physical healing, has made you well, or it can refer to a spiritual healing, salvation before God. I believe that Luke, may, as he's recording Jesus' words, may be playing upon this double meaning of this word. Yes, in, in one sense, all ten lepers had a general faith that Jesus could cleanse them from this physical disease of leprosy. But this one leper in particular had more than just a general faith in Jesus' physical power to heal temporarily a disease. This one leper had faith that Jesus could deal with a, a more fundamental issue and could bring him salvation before God. And the miracles, the, the miracles of the Gospels, especially the healings of the Gospels, 
are much more than just an inspiring story of a first century man temporarily helping the oppressed people of the first century. These healings, these miracles are illustrative of Jesus' grand mission of what he does for his people in this age and in the age to come. They're illustrative of the spiritual redemption that we partake of in this age. Justification, sanctification. But then they're also illustrative of the bodily redemption that we will experience in the age to come. And so as we consider this morning further the nature of true and and saving faith, this faith is not a faith that leads to physical healing for us in this age. We have no promise of that. But rather, this faith leads to what uh, physical healing, these healing miracles, point to. Namely, spiritual redemption this age and bodily redemption in the age to come. So what is faith? What is this faith that Jesus is referring to here? Well, first, it's a faith that recognizes there's a problem. So right away at the beginning of this passage, we encounter Jesus on this journey. If you remember, this is one of the great motifs that Luke uses in this gospel. In chapter 9, we learn that Jesus was transitioning from his Galilean ministry to journey on to Jerusalem. And this has sort of been a meandering journey for Jesus as he's only now in between Samaria and Galilee. He hasn't gotten too far. But here in this passage, we learn that Jesus has entered a certain village. As he enters this village, he comes across ten lepers. These ten lepers cry out to him from a distance, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, these lepers likely were shouting this, crying out from a distance, because in Judaism, if you had leprosy, you were separated from the community. You were in your own quarantined enclave. And we get this sense of of desperation in the voices of these ten lepers. Jesus, Master, have mercy. Have mercy on us. Now, why the desperation? Well, they were lepers. And in ancient Judaism... One had leprosy, as I mentioned. You were separated from the community. As a result, you had a great social stigma placed upon you. You were alienated from normal life in the village. Many Jews viewed leprosy as a direct divine curse from God himself. One commentator compares it to how um, AIDS victims have oftentimes been viewed in the last few decades. It came, came with much... Uh, much social alienation uh, for that individual. And it was something that was very overt, very public. You could see that's a leper from a long distance away, the scabs, the scarring on their skin. But with this one leper in particular, we are told in verses 16 and 17 that he was both a Samaritan and a foreigner. Now, what's the significance of being a Samaritan? Well, there's this long division and conflict between the Samaritans who reside in the north Uh, North Palestine, and the Judeans who reside in the south in Jerusalem and and Judea. There's a long, long history of conflict and and division. One thing that Judeans did is they very much looked down upon the Samaritans as not being true Jews. And we know that this title, this reference to a Samaritan is a negative Identity, especially in the context of this passage, because it's then followed up with this title of being a foreigner. Jesus 
calls this, this leper a foreigner, which likely would have been a term of derision that the Judeans themselves would have used for the Samaritans. Now this term foreigner is a term that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament except here. But we do know from the ancient historian Josephus that this term was used on an inscription in the Jerusalem temple. Now in the Jerusalem temple, there was an inscription that said, no foreigners. Meaning Samaritans were not allowed, they're not worthy of approaching God's presence in that Jerusalem temple. So this one leper in particular, not only is he dealing with the social alienation of being a leper, but he's also a Samaritan and a foreigner. So this leper has problems. He likely recognized these problems that he had. But he also recognized that these issues were not the ultimate issue, the ultimate problem that he was dealing with. He had a more fundamental problem, a, a spiritual sickness of the soul. And this is the problem that we all have as those who are fallen in Adam. You know, our problems are not, our greatest problems are not ultimately that we need a better job, better income, shed a few pounds. Our ultimate problem is that we have leprosy of the soul. Think of what Jeremiah 17 says. Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's a natural condition of the one who has Adam as their father. Desperately sick, a, a spiritual leprosy as it were. And what this leprosy does, it creates an alienation, not just horizontally, but an alienation vertically before God. We all have been exiled from that tree of life, from God's everlasting Sabbath, and thus have a serious, serious problem. Isaiah 59, uh, the prophet says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Cause this alienation, this spiritual alienation between us and our Creator. And so, faith, the first inclination of faith is this recognition that there's a problem, there's an ultimate problem that we all have. But how do we come to this recognition? The great reformer John Calvin, as he's speaking to uh, this issue, he he talks about how we, at times, as sinners, can become drunken or drunk with the sweetness of our sin and, as a result, become very blind, ignorant, or just apathetic to God's judgment, our nature, and the consequences. We're in this spiritual stupor of sorts. And he goes on to say how we also have this inclination to want to look uh, direct our spiritual gaze horizontally rather than spiritually, and he uses the the imagery of eyesight. And he says, imagine if someone has great eyesight, 20-20 vision, can see everything perfectly in full color. And he thinks to himself, my eyes are as good as they come. But then what happens when he looks up directly at the sun? He realizes the limitations of his eyesight as he is temporarily blinded by the power of the sun. So similarly, when our spiritual gaze is, is merely horizontally directed, it's going to be tough for us to fully recognize our ultimate problem. 
we're going to look around and say, you know, I'm better than this person, that person. And really, no one's perfect, so it's not that bad. But then we lift our eyes upward, vertically, and we glaze into the sun, as it were, God's moral perfection and standard. We are utterly blind and struck down and killed by God's moral revelation. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that sin comes, knowledge of sin comes through the law. The law is God's moral revelation. It's a reflection of his moral character. So we need to have the response as, as we will shortly see next, uh, next chapter with the tax collector who falls down upon his knees, knees and beats his breast and says, Oh Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Can't even lift his eyes to heaven. Should create within us that penitent heart before our God. So faith, the first inclination of faith is it recognizes, as this leper recognizes, there's a problem. There's an ultimate problem that we have. But it doesn't stop there because there are people who, who may recognize there's a problem, but they despair, get discouraged, and they just walk away. So the very next step is recognizing that Jesus is the solution. So faith doesn't just recognize that there's a problem, but also recognizes that Jesus is the solution to this problem. So in verse 13, as I've already mentioned, the lepers, they, they cry out to Jesus as they see him entering this village and, and they say, Jesus, master. Now this title or term for master is a title that's already been used on a number of occasions for Jesus, but every other time it's used, it's used by the apostles in the context of one of Jesus' miracles. So this seems to be a statement of faith. At least faith in Christ's power to cleanse them from their leprosy, their physical leprosy. But for this one leper, it seems to be more than that. Jesus' power to bring about this extraordinary salvation. Well, Jesus then in response to this, this plea for mercy, he tells them to go show themselves to the priests. Now the priests were, as one, one commentator has put it, uh, purity inspectors. They didn't participate in the healing or therapeutic process. They merely made judgments, whether someone was healed or not healed. Someone was clean or unclean. And so if these lepers would show themselves to be healed of their leprosy. He, the, the priests would then prescribe ritual sacrifices to be restored back into the community of God. And so Jesus go, says, go show yourself to the priests. And so these lepers, again, have, have a, a general level of faith because they're not currently healed as they set off to go show themselves to the priests. We are told that they're cleansed as they are journeying to these priests. And on their way there, they're healed. They're cleansed of this leprosy. And so we see Jesus' power to remedy this physical condition of, of leprosy. Well, as I have already alluded to, I think this is illustrative of, of the great cleansing that Jesus brings all of his people. If you remember... In our, in our prayer of confession from Psalm 51, David himself, as he's thinking about his sins that he's committed against God himself, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. 
1 John 1, our declaration of pardon. John says that if you confess your sins, God is both faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. So this physical cleansing is pointing to that greater and even more important cleansing of the soul that Jesus gives us, both in our justification as we are, our, our, our sins are completely blotted out and put away, and in our sanctification, our progressive sanctification, as we are inwardly cleansed from our sins and renewed in our inner man. Well, at this point, I think we have a couple of temptations, because many of us probably know that. This is pretty basic. Faith recognizes the problem. Faith also recognizes that Jesus is the solution. But sometimes I think we can, um, you know, we know that we still have a sinful nature. We still have remnants of that spiritual leprosy. We still can sometimes look within and see the scabs and the scars of that sinful nature. And if we peer in too much, we begin to think, well, wait, I, I don't belong to be in God's presence, in his community. I, I, I belong to be exi exiled outside the camp. So that's why it's important for us to not uh, be too introspective. We need to always keep our gaze outside of ourselves upon Christ, who is our cleansing. The only reason we belong in the presence of God is because of his work and representation on our behalf. But another temptation that we have, as those who profess faith, is an inclination towards self-righteousness. Now, our righteousness, our self-righteousness, can be, take a variety of forms. It can, as Reformed Christians, it can sometimes take the form of our, maybe our superior knowledge. We have the, the, the better theology than many, many other Christians out there. It can be our moral purity, especially as we live in a very secular age and we look down upon those heathens who live very um, uh, promiscuous, sinful lives. Or it can just look like a, a, a virtue, a, your profession. Anything else that you look to is that, that, that fundamental sense of who you are, sense of worth. That thing that your life is completely wrapped up in. And one sign that we are self-righteous is when we're on this pendulum of uh, going between pride and despair. Those are when our lives consist mostly of those two emotions. That's a pretty good indication that we are self-righteous. Because what happens is when we look within to our unrighteousness and we think we see something, we spot something that's better than those around us, we become prideful. Our chest goes out, our chin goes up, and we become prideful. But when we look within and we don't really spot anything, that's when despair sets in. But whether it's pride or despair, what unites them both is we're looking inward. We're looking to our own righteousness. But when we look outside of ourselves and we truly find our life in Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, our life is hidden with Christ. When that is fundamental and foundational to who we are, that's when we step out of that spectrum of pride and despair. And when our life truly is hidden with Christ and we look within and if we see something or if we don't see something, it's of secondary importance because what really matters, what gives true meaning and purpose and identity to who we are is found in Christ and that's fixed. That doesn't change. 
And we as Reformed Christians should be the least self-righteous people there are, especially in terms of what we confess to believe. We confess that our hope, our comfort does not lie in our merits, good works, righteousness, or efforts, but wholly upon our Lord Jesus Christ. But we so easily keep our spiritual gaze horizontally and become puffed up in pride or, or brought down in despair. And we're scared to look vertically, to peer into God's law and be killed and struck down and thus comforted with the good news of the gospel. And so faith recognizes it, recognizes both the problem and the solution. And this is really what faith is proper. But now we also see the response of faith, the chief and even the first response of faith. And that response is is gratitude. If you look with me in verse 15, we see this one leper who, uh, these 10 lepers were cleansed, but the one leper in particular, as he's going to the priest, turns back to come to Jesus and falls down before Jesus and praises him and gives him thanks for this healing. One thing that's interesting to consider is this one leper was a Samaritan. These other, the other nine lepers were likely Judeans. And so Jesus just says, go show yourself to the priests. Well, the Samaritans, the Judeans had different places of worship. The Samaritans worshiped at Mount Gerizim in the north, and then the Judeans worshiped in Jerusalem at the temple. In John 4, a call to worship. Jesus' response there is uh, in response to this woman's question of, well, where is the true place of worship? Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem? And Jesus here doesn't say which priests. A Samaritan and Judeans. Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem. He doesn't, he doesn't indicate. And this one, uh, this one leper in particular, he, as he's going on to, to the priest, he recognizes, no, what I need to do right now is not first and foremost go to the priest. I need to go to Jesus. Fall down before him and praise and give him thanks. Now the temple in the Old Testament, one thing that it did is it reminded the people in a very overt way, that they're unholy and God's holy. The temple was a place where God's presence dwelt in a very special, redemptive way. And these people had to do ritual sacrifices to to just draw near, even from a distance, to his holy presence. The priest could enter the holy place. A high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. It was a very restrictive place. And there are lots of things that would render you unclean, even things that are not inherently evil or sinful, like sex or childbirth, even all the dietary laws. The reason why those things would render one unclean is because they're inherently creaturely things. God does not partake in childbirth and sex. Those are creaturely things. And thus it also meant to teach the people this foundational distinction between the creator and the creature. God is not like us. So these lepers were going to likely a temple to show themselves to the priests. And this one leper turns around to come to Jesus. Some commentators, some scholars think that what might be going on here is Luke may be implicitly showing this great shift that happens in redemptive history with the coming of Jesus. That the way to access God after the coming of Jesus is not through an earthly sanctuary, but through Christ. It's in Christ that we now approach God in his heavenly and holy sanctuary. 
Christ is the fulfillment of the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices. And thus this leper recognized that to some degree that he comes and falls down before Jesus and praises and worships him and through him, God the Father. And so this reminds us that that foundational response of faith is gratitude, thanksgiving. And this gratitude, thanksgiving has a a very Christological sense to it. This moment, we gather as those who are in Christ and we approach God through our mediator and intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we seek to live lives of gratitude. Many of you have heard that guilt, grace, gratitude scheme that we talk about a lot. The main motivation of the Christian life as those who are redeemed in Christ is gratitude. But have you ever thought why God accepts your measly efforts of obedience. Even our efforts of obedience as Christians falls far, far short of perfect obedience. How can we ever please God as Christians? Well, we can't, according to strict merit. But us pleasing God as Christians only comes by grace through Christ because we've been covered in the blood of Christ. He looks at us through that prism of Christ. And therefore, our works um, are not of of merit, but they're received through grace. It's like a a child, you know, bringing a a drawing to to his or her father. According to strict merit and the the, uh, principles of art, it's a terrible piece. But the father loves it because the father's a father. And so in Christ, God is our father. And sometimes I think we can forget in the day-to-day, in our day-to-day life, all that we have to give thanks for as the people of faith. Many of us, many of us get anxious about the future. We all, no matter what season of life you you are in, there's probably something in the future that you're planning for, you're anxious about, you think a lot about, kind of who we are as creatures. Now, if this life is just a blip on the map of eternity, we have eternity already figured out, which should be a huge relief. If we get so anxious about retirement or vocation or college or all of these things, we have eternity figured out. Furthermore, we all probably can get anxious when we look at the front page of the newspaper, see what's going on in in current affairs. We have to remember what, what we read in Psalm 2. God looks down upon this earth and he laughs because he sent his son, the anointed one, on Mount Zion as king of the nations and calls us blessed who take refuge in him. We know how things are going to end. And we're on the winning side. And even our ordinary problems in this age, the trials, the sufferings, the difficulties we face, uh, we have hope that this world can offer. Now, of course, we can't explain and and in specific detail, the why behind these things. But we do entrust ourselves to a God who's not just an abstract deity, but a, but a God who shows himself to be at his best when things are at their worst. That's what the cross reveals to us. That God is at his best when things seem to be at their worst. And that's the God we entrust ourselves to. 
And the same God also promises that it's in the, the, the sufferings of this life, the trials of this life, that he promises to show up in his power, in his presence, and in his comfort. Paul makes that point on a number of occasions in 2 Corinthians 4 and 12, Philippians 3. Paul says that he can even boast in his weaknesses, not because he likes suffering for its own sake, because that's where God's power is going to be manifested. So God's presence, his comfort, shows up not in times of blessing, not before or after sufferings, but in the sufferings. That's the promise that we are called to cling to. It's in the sufferings that God wants to strip us of our self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and prop himself up as our God and Father, a God and Father who promises to help us. That's why we confess at the beginning of our worship service that our help, our only help, comes in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is the confession of the people of faith. And that's a promise we are to cling to in those moments. And the promise that our Lord is trying to impress upon us, especially during the difficult times of life. So we have a lot to give thanks for. Whether we're in the valley or whether we're on the mountaintop. We are the people of faith. 